This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. As Carol mentioned at the top of the show, many Americans woke up this morning to news that there almost was an airstrike by American forces on Iran. President saying that he pulled back from that, tweeting, and then later speaking about it. We heard some of that sound earlier. Shannon Pettypiece is White House correspondent for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from our bureau in the nation's capital. So, Shannon, walk us through kind of where we were and where we are as it relates to the posture toward the Iranians. Well, there has been an escalation going on for, um, you know, a little over a week. Well, I mean, there's been an escalation going on for a while, but it's certainly heightened in recent days. Uh, there was a um, an allegation that the uh, Iranians were responsible for an attack on a boat in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, then there was this shooting down of the unmanned uh, drone uh, that was either over international airspace or over Iranian airspace, depending on who you're listening to. Um, but essentially, um, you know, the administration was sort of in a position where they had to determine if they were going to respond in some way. Um, and they spent, you know, most of yesterday uh, with the president and his senior military and um, national security uh, officials trying to determine what, if any, response they should make. Uh, and it, as the president describes, it came down to um, a decision to launch an attack mostly on um, strategic and military sites, but that could have resulted in 150 casualties. And he decided uh, minutes before that uh, that that wasn't necessarily a proportional response. Um, it doesn't mean there won't be some other type of response, right. but that that was a response he just decided to take a pass on at this time. Shannon, it feels like to me this kind of story would have been people close to the White House say the president had planned a strike and struck it down. Instead, we have a president who actually tweeted out and said, I was going to do this and I didn't. And I do wonder about this strategy. Well, so interestingly, though, the um, story, uh, I believe it was the New York Times that first reported late last night that there was this attack, um, this strike that was planned and called off. uh, And then a number of other news organizations, Bloomberg being one of them, Mm -hmm. uh, was able to quickly match that. So um, when he woke up this morning, you had, you know, numerous news organizations reporting um, about this strike. And so only then, I think it was maybe 9, 30, 10 o'clock today, did the president come out and uh, tweet his own version of it, which in a lot of ways lined up to what other places had been reporting, um, and chose to make this public. Now, I don't know the motivations behind who initially leaked that this attack was going on right. and why that was put out there in the first place, um, but that's sort of the, the origins of how this, this sort of public uh, posturing came about. And so, Shannon, what's the sense of where we are now? Because there was a sense from our reporting and others, and and even at least between the lines of what the president said, that this isn't over. You know, we don't know what the talks really entail. There are a lot of go-betweens with Iran because there are no direct relations, as you've said. So what do we think happens next? Well, there's a hope on the administration's part that this could send a signal to Iran that the U.S. is serious um, about 
uh, retaliating to what they perceive as bad behavior, um, that this could maybe force Iran back to the table. The U.S. has, uh, although it withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, they would like to get some sort of nuclear deal with Iran, only um, you know, with maybe a longer timeline or um, bigger changes or restrictions to Iran's nuclear program. Um, that's been the criticism of the Iran nuclear deal is that it wasn't strong enough, and the administration is under the perception that they could uh, negotiate a stronger one. So maybe something like this could get Iran back to the table, um, or it couldn't because the Iranians haven't shown an indication that they are going to negotiate with a gun to their head uh, and not budging um, on that in any way. But the president was, in a way, effective at getting the North Koreans to some extent to come to the table. We'll see what comes to that in the long run. But by taking this sort of gun to the head, fire and fury approach with North Korea, um, you know, the administration would say, well, we were able to get our hostages back and some of the remains, and they were yeah. able to start negotiations and discussions there at least. So it's a possibility that happens with Iran, too. got to say, Shannon, you know this better than, uh, than everybody, uh, anyone out there, that um, never a dull moment. So we've got this going on. Yeah. You've got the president raising a bunch of money uh, for his 2020 campaign. And then, of course, we've got to think about he's getting ready for the G20. Right. And I mean, you mentioned the campaign because you can put all this in a um, political calculus as well. And mm-hmm. one of his key promises has been um, getting the U.S. out of what he calls these endless wars in the Middle East. And he's been a pretty anti-war um, candidate even before he was a candidate, took a lot of anti-war positions. So um, getting us involved in escalating situation militarily doesn't necessarily look well uh, from a political or campaign standpoint. It's hard to say how much of a role any of that played, but that's certainly something in the back of people's minds um, in the administration and his advisors is, do we want to be getting into a military conflict in an election uh, during an election cycle? Well, and before we let you go, just got to ask you about that G20, because our colleagues Sean Donnan and Peter Martin have a great story in the terminal that basically says, G G twenties used to be kind of bu- kind of bummers, kind of boring. Um, you know, any <laughs> sort of G- any sort of gathering of G's was like, all right, we'll wait for the communique. But I mean, this is she on Trump full on. How is the White House feeling about this at this point? Only got about forty seconds. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense that this is going to be a, a really intense um, visit, not just with the she meeting, but meetings with a lot of leaders, sort right. of um, sun up to sundown, well past sundown meetings going on here. So yeah, I think a lot's going to come out of it whether or not this is going to move things forward with China, that's hard to say, because when you talk about people who don't negotiate well with a gun to their head, China would be one of those, too. So we'll get a better idea of how effective the president's strategy is. And of course, that has implications for his reelection as well, because right. if there's not a China deal or there's some retaliation by China, that is going to uh, have a, a consequences for 2020. I think you're so smart, and you're right, that everything we have to look through a political lens. So spot on, Shannon. Yeah, Thank sadly, you. we are at that stage. Exactly. <laughs> Shannon Pettypiece, White House correspondent, Bloomberg News joining us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. So smart and so yep. uh, so smart to sort of synthesize all of that because you're right, through the political lens, you could almost see the president thinking that yeah. as he's writing that tweet and as he's uh, positioning it all to his electorate. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm so afraid to tell people. I mean, I just, Susan, I'm gay. <laughs> 
All right, so we were taking you back to April 1997. Folks, think about that. It was a different time and place. That was, of course, the sitcom Ellen. Ellen DeGeneres, the actor and comedian, coming out her character on that uh, sitcom, coming out and telling uh, her friends and family that she was gay. Uh, Like we said, it was a very different era. This story and how it kind of really pertains to how the world has changed in corporate America and really the world at large is the cover story of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Ben Steverman is personal finance editor at Bloomberg News. He wrote it along with our Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter at Bloomberg News. Matt joining us on the phone in New York. Ben right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jason and I love this story. I know it is the cover story. Let's start with you, Ben. Talk to us a little bit about it and how this story came to be and what you guys kind of wanted to do with it. Well, we want. this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall coming right. up. And we wanted to do uh, – a, working on a package all about uh, LGBT issues. And we were trying to think about how to tell the story of how much things have changed. And if you really go back to 1997 when Ellen came out – uh, it's hard to remember now wh- how that just completely destroyed her career. She basically spent three years where right. she couldn't get back on TV. It was this huge media sensation. It's like it's sort of Im- hard to imagine now that it was such a big deal. Um, advertisers pulled out. Advertisers didn't want to get involved in like associating themselves with Ellen. And now that's just such a ridiculous thing to even think about because advertisers love Ellen. They right. love her show. They love being associated with her. You remember the selfie at the uh, the Oscars oh and all God, these yeah. other things that, that broke twitter broke, broke twitter and 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 samsung really helped help by sales on that so um we wanted to tell that story and and now she's working with walmart and and that's where matt comes in right so meanwhile in bentonville uh matthew boyle uh come on in here because walmart it hasn't had really a, a straight line as it were as it goes toward where it ends up now with ellen yeah, exactly, Jason. I mean, this is very, a very checkered history there at Walmart in terms of how they treat not only gays and lesbians, but look at, you know, minorities, look at women as well in the long-running uh, gender discrimination lawsuits that Walmart has faced and still faces even, uh, even to this day. So, but you look at, you know, this is a company that is just sort of rock-solid conservative, founded in northwest Arkansas by Sam Walton, a man who taught Sunday school and whose corporate gospel, which is still very much spoken in the halls of of Bentonville's uh, headquarters today, uh, was all about service and respect, you know, sort of a uh, very proto-Christian sort of, uh, uh, you know, corporate uh, culture. And that's embedded in Walmart today. You know, Sam Walton is revered, you know, not only around in Walmart, but in retail. So you're talking about a company that has made very slow um, sort of halting steps uh, towards uh, fully appreciating not only their gay and lesbian consumers, of which there are, of course, millions, but also their employees as well. Um, there's a big and, and pretty proud group of Walmart uh, gay employees. Um, but it has been sort of a, a rocky um, you know, relationship there. And only now the fact that they're you know, totally uh, embedded with uh, Ellen um, kind of shows that for Walmart, a decision that 20 years ago would have carried a lot of risk today carries very little risk at all. It also is, and you guys write this in your story, is a testament to how Americans have accepted LGBTQ rights. I mean, you think about, right, 97, like we have a hard time getting our head around that there would be such pushback. We're in a very different environment today, Ben. 
Yeah, and and actually, I think Ellen had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Um, there there really weren't very many out celebrities up until Ellen, and the ones some of the ones that were out were, came out because they got AIDS and died. Rock Hudson and Freddie Mercury, and and so I. Uh, and that was such a bleak time for LGBT community when she came out because it was the AIDS crisis. Uh, Matthew Shepard was killed uh, sh- shortly after she came out. And um, she really was – became like the first lesbian that a lot of people knew. And and, and now she's she came back and she did this talk show in 2003 and she was in everybody's homes every day and really became beloved among a certain a group of people. Um, who, especially women who who watch the show, it's about seventy five percent women who watch the show, and advertisers wanted to be near that, and and it was really a feel good positive show where she giving away money, um, uh, you know, raising right. money for for good causes and, and things like that, dancing. So. Dancing, right, dancing. But, Jay, but Jason, you brought this up when we were taping this a segment about this for the weekend show uh, on radio and TV, and you said this point that, I mean, she is incredibly popular, whether it becomes Unbelievably her popular. shows, her daytime show, her evening show, and her Twitter account. I mean, this woman reaches a lot of people. Right. She has a huge platform, and she's used it. You know, she's actually really into home decor and, and like, home design. She and her wife, Portia de Rossi, have bought and sold all these uh, Hollywood mansions and selling them to people like Eric Schmidt of Google. And, and she's branched out from that to her own lifestyle brand. Um, so that was pre-existing, but even before Ellen, came, uh, before Walmart came along, but she was she's selling that right. at Walmart. I mean, I mean, at Macy's and Nordstrom's and stuff. And so she's created this whole brand, and she's very, very careful about how she manages that, and she's been very savvy. Yeah. Well, we could talk a lot more it's about story, this story. Guys. It is a must-read in the magazine. A great issue. This really anchors it all and tells you a lot about what you need to know about what's going on in America, in entertainment, and in retail. Ben Steverman and Matt Boyle, they both wrote it. Congrats to you both. Thank you both so much for joining us. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, earlier this week, as part of our Business Week talk series, I got to catch up with Andy Palmer. He's the CEO of Aston Martin. Fascinating career that he's had. We had to start on the news, and we started by me asking him how the trade war is going in his business. Well, first of all, you know, at a macro level, it's the biggest car um, market in the world. China is the first and America is the second. So uh, we tend to therefore observe a little from from Europe. Uh, But it's an important market, key point. Um, It's also a market that's quickly moving to electric, driven by regulations, uh, essentially. So it's a changing market. Now, what we've seen is it's also, uh, in, in the very short term, a declining market, if one looks at the uh, total industry volume there. Uh, and, and obviously, you see certain car companies really struggling. Uh, Jaguar Land Rover is, is, is the most obvious one to point to. But that premium group of, of, of cars are suffering on a market where there is a certain lack of confidence because of trade tension. We don't suffer from the trade tension. The Europeans don't suffer from the trade tension in itself, but there is a, there's a consumer yeah. confidence issue. Now, interestingly, that is not affecting the luxury business. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna uh. to define the car business as entry, mass, premium, and luxury. And that luxury business, which is, which is a relatively small number of cars traded each year, less than 50,000 cars, um, that is not affected. In fact, uh, we saw our, our biggest ever growth 
um, of sales in the first quarter of this year, a 30% growth in sales. So one of the things about being in true luxury is that you tend to be able to be somewhat insulated from those big macroeconomic um, uh, movements because, to be honest, rich people tend to be a little bit insulated from those movements. And so if they're going to buy a car like an Aston, then they're going to buy it, whatever happens. So, so far, China is an important market. It's not our biggest market. The U.S. is our biggest market. But so far, we seem to be pretty well insulated. And actually, each month, if anything, I'm slightly frustrated because we don't have a single car on the ground there. We're, we're trying to get more and more cars right. in there because demand is growing. Uh, closer to home for you, Brexit certainly has played through all categories. It feels like, is luxury immune there or a little less uh, affected? How is that playing through your market? I think it's fair to say that luxury is just fed up with talking about Brexit, to be <laughs> honest. It seems to be an ever, ever ongoing discussion. Look, at a, at a tariff level, um, are we affected by the tariff? And I would say no. Um, <clears throat> clearly... Our cars being imported into Europe, if they get affected by 10% tariff, then that represents about 17% of our production. Likewise, the UK, which represents about 20% of our production, our competitors, Ferrari, Lamborghini, and to some extent Rolls-Royce and Bentley, because they're essentially using lots of EU bits, that would also be affected. So you know, what we lose in Europe, we'll gain in the UK, and, and probably more than gain, because my hypothesis is, is obviously, if we do have a hard Brexit, um, the pound will crash. Um, that helps us from an exporter's point of view. And therefore, we could probably mitigate most of the 10% tariff. So one can argue, one can argue some benefits. However, some effect on consumer confidence, let's call it a wash. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty much doesn't matter. If we can turn that into an opportunity, it would be insofar as if, if the UK is an independent entity and we can do trade deals quickly, for example, with the United States, which is what, of course, uh, uh, Mr. Trump has, has promised, then clearly our biggest market in this is in the US and we could essentially save that 10% tariff that we get today coming into, into the United States. So there is some... There is some silver linings to the cloud. The, however, you know, tariffs, not a problem. What is the problem is the, is the supply chain. About 60% of our bits uh, are sourced out of Europe. Um, and they've got to come through a customs. And if you're suddenly having going from ha basically having no paperwork associated with your supply chain to lots and lots of bits of paper, then you're going to get the whole supply chain slowing down. Now, bear in mind, last year we bought 12.3 million parts into our factory. And they have to get there within a 30-minute window. Our tack time, this is the time to build a car at each of the stations, is 30 minutes. 12 million bits within a 30-minute uh, window. You can't afford to have parts stuck at customs. Likewise, some politicians might say, well, you know, the UK can throw open its gates so we can get the bits in quickly. Regrettably, 34% um, of our parts cross the channel uh, two or more times. Wow. Bits that are, let's say, parts for engines that are then shipped to Germany to assemble into our engine before the engine is then shipped back. So 
you have to have the gates open in the other direction as well. And that's the key point. It's basically about making sure that we can insulate ourselves from the supply mm-hmm. chain. And, of course, because of all of the uncertainty about what will or won't happen, and one obviously hopes that we're going to end up with an agreement, but we've taken a lot of actions to mitigate our risks, built up stock so that we're not right. subject to that 30-minute window. Um, we've booked alternative uh, alternative routes, Mo- most parts coming through uh, on the on the train mm-hmm. between Calais and uh, Dover. So we book- booked other um, routes in. And in the worst circumstances, we've also booked air transportation so right. we, we can bring our parts in by, by air. And that was just a part of my conversation with Andy Palmer. He is the chief executive officer of Aston Martin, pretty well-known brand, but they're trying to expand their market, Carol. We spent a lot of that uh, chunk that you just listened to about, you know, talking about trade, Mm -hmm. U.S.-China, which hasn't affected them as much, but Brexit, which really has. One of the interesting things that I really took away was that a really uh, difficult time for the pound will actually be good for their business in some ways. But what he's worried about you mean a weaker is pound? A weaker pound, right. yes. Because um, it makes it cheaper right. for their products. And, but one of the things he's really worried about is this supply chain and all the going back and forth that happens right now. And I hadn't even thought about this, the idea that you might sort of get some parts in the UK. Cool, you can source them locally. But then you're sending them somewhere else, say, what? to Germany to be assembled. And then they're going somewhere else and then they're coming back to the uk like well this is a very complicated economic ecosystem there this is what has come out of as we have you know continue to talk about trade relations between various countries and you see this in particular with mexico the supply chains you do have that the car industry in particular that you send products somewhere they might do something and then it comes back either as a finished product or as an almost finished product maybe something else needs to be done and that's where the global supply chain has come and that is not an easy one to undo. So right. it's a reminder of that. And this is kind of the world globalization. This is where it's gotten us to. So stay tuned in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have that full conversation for you. will be in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Did he we'll sell put you it a car? Fully as a podcast. I can't afford an Aston Martin. Are you kidding? <laughs> I don't know. I know I have a James Bond air about me, but that no, doesn't mean. No, you no, don't. I no, don't. No, what? No, no. Sorry. Really? <laughs> Not at all? <laughs> Crushed. Wow. Crushed. Friday <laughs> right, fail. Right, maybe a little bit. Man. Sorry. No, it's too late. Do you suddenly realize that this could be the start of something big? Well, 2019, we talked about this last year. It was going to be the year of IPOs, startups really finally hitting the a public market. We saw that yesterday with Slack, right? Um, going public, big day in terms of its first day of trading up about 48%, giving back a little bit, about uh, down about 4% today, but still a pretty decent debut and doing a different, I shouldn't call it an IPO, they did a direct listing. So we're seeing... Yeah, exactly. Hey, so let's talk a little bit about investments, the VC world, and what we're seeing in the startup community. Craig Shedler is venture partner at Northwestern Mutual. He's joining us on the phone in Milwaukee for our weekly look at the world of venture capital. Craig, nice to have you here with us. When you look, though, at the market here in 2019 for taking companies public, whether through an IPO or whether through a direct listing, what are you seeing about the environment? What are you seeing about these companies that maybe have been private for a long time and then finally going public? Yeah, I, mean, I think if you look at some of the, the recent IPO performance, I think overall it's been, it's been pretty strong. So I think you know, the, the public markets have been you know, receptive to uh, these private companies that you know, have stayed private long, have built you know, large businesses and 
um, are you know showing showing good strong paths to profitability, and you know the public markets have been receptive to that. And, and so, do you feel like, given all the cross currents in the market and and some of the performance that we've seen, we're still going to have this sort of big year uh, for the rest of 2019, or is there any caution entering in? Yeah, yeah, I think the year's going to remain pretty strong. You know, where I tend to invest in the financial technology space, I think there's been some delays and, and maybe some, you know, some talk of, of companies continuing to remain private. Right. I think there's been, you know, some, some pretty, uh, pretty important drivers behind that. I think, one, when you look at just the availability of private capital, uh, especially at the later stage for successful companies, I think you've had some of the, the financial technology uh, companies that have been the real winners in the space, you know, been pretty clear that they intend to remain private for quite a while. And I think... Uh, in, in financial technology, there's some pretty good reasons to do that, especially with the availability of, of capital being what it is in the private markets. So let's talk a little bit about the IPO pipeline and what you're waiting to see. We've got Stripe. Um, they're saying, what, no plans to go public anytime soon. Lemonade is reportedly filed for its IPO. What what of the issues that are out there and companies that are out there, What's what are you finding interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you mentioned Stripe, which I think has sort of been one of the, the largest ones out there that's really said, you know, no intentions of going public anytime soon. Lemonade, as you mentioned, has, has filed as well. Um, some of the others, whether it be Affirm and Oscar and, and, you know, some of the other really large fintech companies really taking a, a wait-and-see approach with, like I mentioned, you know, the availability of capital. But I think also a very important point is just, the, you know, the regulatory environment around financial services uh, makes it such that remaining private, you know, can be uh, can be very advantageous as you continue to grow. And so, Craig, you know, you guys are very active putting money to work from the Northwestern Mutual Future Ventures Fund. You've made 14 investments already here in 2019. Does this habit of staying private longer, does it affect how you invest on the front end? Do you model differently? Do you look for different areas? Or is it more or less business as usual? Yeah, you know, the, the IPO market's always this leading indicator, and I think it's, you know, the, the really, really large, large companies that, that, that look at an IPO exit. But I think if you look at most venture stage companies that are successful, you know, so much of what ultimately ends up happening is some type of acquisition activity. And yeah. I think if you look at the acquisition market, it remains incredibly robust overall. So, um, you know, I think the IPO is, again, sort of this, this big indicator, but, you know, for the vast majority of of venture-backed companies and acquisitions going to be the most likely exit outcome. Hey, Craig, i got to ask you, what kind of returns are you guys seeing on your investments that you've made over the last couple of years? Well, without getting into too many specifics, you know, I, I think overall, you know, venture returns continue to look strong. Um, like I said, you know, between the, the M&A pipelines of, of large acquirers being, you know, very active and continuing to be active, you know, I think that's always a good sign. Um, you know, I think overall returns continue to be strong across the asset class, and, and I think that's being demonstrated by, uh, more funds being raised and, and those funds attracting, you know, more and more capital. What's the competition for deals like uh, right now? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an active market, to say the least. Um, you know, a lot of interest, and I think, between traditional venture capital funds as well as the corporate venture capital funds and uh, some of the crossover investors from hedge funds and other places, there's, um, there's definitely a lot of interest. But I think that interest continues to migrate more to later stage opportunities. And I think there is a real opportunity at the Series A stage, uh, at some of the earlier stage opportunities where you know, we're seeing actually uh, pretty stable valuations and, and actually some, some pretty fair pricing. You running up against uh, any family offices as you go out there? More and more, I think, you know, I think family offices are becoming much more sophisticated in how they look at various asset classes, and I think venture being one that 
um, has attracted a lot of attention from family offices. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's probably more that are active in a, in a meaningful way than there were in the past. Hey, Craig, just got about 20 seconds left here. What, from what you're seeing in terms of the investment opportunities that are out there, um, tells you about where we are in this market cycle? You know, is the economy headed maybe for a downturn here? I don't think so. I think overall, if you look at how, um, you know, just the pace of continued innovation and how technology continues to advance, I think there's so many opportunities there that um, I I think overall, I think we're looking at a pretty strong market going into 2020. Craig Shedler is a venture partner with Northwestern Mutual, working on the Northwestern Mutual Future Investments Fund. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, back with us is Bruce Biddles. He's Chief Investment Strategist at Baird. He's joining us on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. Bruce, check it out. We are on track. I'm looking at one, two, three weeks in a row. And we're looking for the S&P to be up about 2.4%. Uh, another record on the S&P 500. We saw that yesterday. Does the market at these levels and the valuations make any sense to you? Well, uh, first of all, you know, the market is trading at um, pretty rich ex- valuations. There's no question about that. But um, the problem with valuations, if you just look at those for market direction, you're looking at the wrong thing. Um, valuations don't tell you which way the market's going to go. They can stay overvalued or undervalued for long stretches of time. What valuations do tell you, they tell you about the level of risk of the market. And, and of course, with these high valuations, it is a much more um, riskier market. But with the Federal Reserve Board now um, signaling loud and clear that they're going to lower interest rates if necessary, I think, you know, the market has certainly has a safety net underneath it. And so what do you do from here? I mean, what are you advising folks to do, Bruce? Because, you know, as Carol said, the the market's going up, even with a world where we had a situation last night where we almost attacked another country. Um, and yet the market was like, yeah, it's cool. Like, what do you do? Well, I, I, we've been telling our clients to remain in the market all along here, despite the increase in volatility. What we have done, however, this year is we've leaned more toward defensive sectors of the market, and they really have outperformed. I mean, if you look at the utilities, consumer staples, uh, REITs, they're all sitting at or near record highs. And they've been in a leadership position for most of the year, which is pretty unusual, given that the S&P has had a good year already, and the leadership is coming from defensive areas. But uh, what we should see now, if the Federal Reserve Board is going to lower rates, and of course rates are down, uh, the bond market has taken rates down, and globally they're down, um, we should start to see um, cyclical sectors such as um, the financials, the industrials, the material sectors. They should begin to rise to the surface now in terms of relative strength. They should be where the leadership develops over the course of the next quarter or two. And that's where I think investors should go. 
Well, okay. So, you know, it's really fascinating too. We sat down with some big names in the private equity world and we talked a lot about valuations and so on and so forth in this market. And I do feel like, you know, folks are talking about valuations have, have peaked in terms of this cycle. Um, we've also had some other guests come, you know, around the table with us saying that maybe there's a few more years left in this cycle. So, you know, especially when you do feel like, Bruce, something has changed in terms of this low rate environment. Well, let me say this. Um, first of all, this is the most widely heralded recession, if we're going to have one, that I can remember, and I've been doing this a long time. Uh, so uh, it looks to me like, from a contrary opinion perspective at least, uh, you can stay positive on, on the markets. The other thing that has not changed in this cycle is that um, you don't want to fight the Federal Reserve Board. It just, it, it's a losing battle. The Federal Reserve Board is so powerful that eventually they get their way. And if they want the market and, and some inflation to come back into the economy, um, I wouldn't bet against them. And I think that's why you're saying um, gold do so much better this month. I think it's up almost 10% for the month. Uh, in a month, four yeah. weeks. Our Dave Wilson, actually, his chart of the day had to do with uh, gold and some folks weighing in on gold. Yeah, we've seen certainly a bounce back. So if you look at you know all the reports, all the forecasts are for inflation to remain low or go lower. And, um, and it appears to me that um, the commodity markets may be saying something, something different. And with 2% 10-year treasuries and negative 30 um, – Thirty uh, year, uh, ten year bonds on the on the German market. Uh, I'd have to believe that some inflation is going to come back in at some point, and um, and I think that's what the gold market is telling us now. Also, what we're looking for here is for the um, yield curve should start to steepen. If we're right about that, and it, it, it the last couple of days it looks like that. And your treasury yield is, is rising faster than the two-year note here. And so that's the beginning, maybe. But for that to materialize and for us to believe that that's going to be the case, we should start to see the financial sector do much better. So, Bruce, when you hear from uh, Fed Chair Powell like you did this week, were you surprised at, at what sounds like a pretty heavy descent in the ranks in terms of where to go with interest rates from here? Yeah, I was surprised for this reason. I, I, you know, you've got the stock market sitting up here at new record highs, as you su- suggested. Um, if the June employment report comes in strong, and if we made some progress at the June 20 meeting uh, next week, G20 meeting next week, um, then I think it's going to be much more difficult for the Federal Reserve Board to meet the, the market's expectations for at least a 25 basis point rate cut in July. And some are looking for a 50 basis point cut, which I, I think is, is, is probably out of the question given what the markets are doing now. Right. Neil Kashkari, not a voting member of the Fed, but calling on putting out something about that specifically. I do wonder whether, Bruce, when do we get to the point again as observers of the economy and the market uh, in particular that we don't really want the Fed to be cutting rates at this point. We want the Fed to see the economy as showing some signs of inflation, showing stronger growth levels. I mean, that's a better environment for things going forward. Absolutely. Um, I think the Fed would signal that um, they're going to keep rates the same or at some point, maybe in the second half of the year, even raise rates. Now, I know a lot of folks are would, would, would treat that with anguish, but be, be, 
but I believe that you're correct there. If the Federal Reserve Board um, suggested that rates might even go up in the second half of the year at some point, that would be a bullish indication for the U.S. economy, and I think that would be really a real positive event for the markets longer term. The fact that these rates are keep falling, keep falling, suggests that the economies around the world are in trouble. Right. Now, like I said earlier, the benchmark yield on that 10-year German note is negative uh, 30 basis right. points. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I think that's influencing our rates as well. So the fact that the 10-year T note is trading at a 2% yield, I think part of that is a reflection of what's happening overseas and not so much what's happening here. We're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Bruce Biddles, Chief Investment Strategist for Bear, joining us on the phone from down in Sarasota, Florida. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.